You ever felt um, alone? Had a moment in your life when you felt truly alone? Maybe you looked around to see who had your back and when there wasn't anybody. Maybe it was when you went off to college for the first time, or maybe you faced a, a major life setback, a job loss, or maybe the loss of a spouse through divorce or death. I remember a woman in the church who lost her husband quite suddenly at the age of 60, and she had never lived alone. They had married right out of high school. Her children were living in California and Texas, and and he had taken care of all the legal and financial affairs. She wasn't even sure where the checkbook was. And with tears in her eyes, she said to me, For the first time in my life, I feel completely alone in the universe. And it's terrifying. Maybe you felt like that. Well, we're in a series on the Godhead. And we spent three weeks talking about God the Father. Last week, we talked about Jesus as our friend, and today we talk about Jesus as our mediator. Our text is from Paul's first letter to Timothy, uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. I urge then, first of all, that petitions and prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives and all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Well, when we begin talking about Jesus, the the first thing we have to understand is that he was fully God and and fully man. And not just a a little bit human or a a touch of the divine, but, but fully both. As John's gospel declares, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And whenever the church has got this wrong, and that has happened in a number of times throughout church history, we head down uh, this dead-end road. And because Jesus is both God and man, he has two states. Theologians called it his state of humiliation and his state of exaltation. His state of humiliation began at his conception and ended at his death. His state of exaltation began when he descended into Hades, rose from the dead, ascended back into heaven where he now sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and where he assumes three offices, prophet, priest, and king. Now as prophet, Jesus communicates the word of God to us. Now, the role of prophet is to communicate God's truth to the world through an imperfect uh, communicator. Whenever God tries to speak through a human, it, it always comes out a little bit distorted. But Jesus is the, the perfect revealer of divine truth. Again, as John writes in his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You see, the reason that people in Jesus' day say that he spoke with authority is because he was the Word. But not only is he prophet, he's also king. 
Jesus rules now all things in heaven and earth. And again, before his ascension, he spoke to his disciples and he said, all power is given to me in heaven and in earth. Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords. So he's prophet, he's priest, or he's prophet and he's king, but he's also priest. And as priest, his role is to intercede for us. You see, a, a priest in the Old Testament offered sacrifices for the sins of the worshiper. And the book of Hebrews um, does this great job of comparing and contrasting the Levitical priests with Jesus' priesthood. You see, that the Hebrew priests were from the tribe of Levi. That was the law. Jesus from the tribe of Judah. Uh, the Hebrew priest, priest, being human, died. Jesus lives forever. The Hebrew priests were imperfect sinners. Jesus, the Bible says, was holy and blameless and pure and exalted in the heavens. So Jesus, as our high priest, both offered up a sacrifice once and for all for the sins of the world and also was the sacrifice. See, Jesus was both our high priest and the Lamb of God. And the Bible tells us that now he intercedes for us. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 7, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Did you hear that? Jesus lives to intercede for us. So Jesus did not go to heaven after his earthly ministry and take a break. You know, All right. Kind of done being the, the great shepherd for now. I hope these guys can take care of it from now on out. You know, I'm, I'm not going to do it. You guys can do it. Fortunately, he didn't say that. <laughs> Jesus is still very active on our behalf in heaven. So what does this mean? Well, according to Webster's Dictionary, to intercede means to, to go or to pass between. To act as uh, between parties with a view to reconcile those who differ or contend. To mediate or to make intercession. Now to mediate, Webster's Dictionary says this. To mediate means between two extremes. To interpose between parties as the equal friend of each. To negotiate between persons at variance with a view to reconciliation. To mediate a peace or intercession. Isn't that interesting how mediation defines intercession and intercession is used to define mediation? You cannot have one without the other. And it goes, all the, all, goes on all the time. Whenever Pastor Mark gets in trouble with the law, which is not infrequent, <laughs> he hires a lawyer. And that lawyer represents his point of view, that he's not guilty. So whenever you need to go to court, you, you hire a lawyer to intercede for you. In the same way Jesus intercedes, he represents us to God. Again, John chapter 1 says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So Jesus has made known God the Father to us. Jesus has drawn a, a picture of God and so that now we know what he looks like. And not only does he represent God to us, he represents us to God. He was the ultimate attorney 
for both sides. He is the ultimate, the final, and the only go-between. Jesus functions, you see, as our representative, guaranteeing our access to the Father and the benefits of redemption that come with being his children. I don't know exactly how this works. Maybe something like this. Maybe God the Son says to God the Father, hey, here comes Mark to approach your throne of grace. And he's not coming because of his own merits or because he thinks he's some righteous dude, but because he trusts in my righteousness. And he's coming in, he's coming in my name, and, and God, he, he, he's had a tough week, and he has a few things to ask of you. And the father replies, of course, I remember Mark. <laughs> you brought him into my family when he was lost and in college. He is always welcome here before the throne of grace. You see, Jesus opens the way for my prayers to be heard. That's why we always end our prayers by saying, in the name of Jesus. Now, if you come from a Roman Catholic background, you may be used to asking the saints to intercede, to mediate for you. Uh, I have a friend, a good friend, who's Roman Catholic. He, he's way smarter than I am, and so I'm always reluctant to enter into any kind of theological debate with him because I usually lose but, but every once in a while he'll ask me, you know, well, how, why, why don't you guys, why don't you pray to the saints? It seems like that would really, really, really help you. Now, before I go on, let me define what, what a saint is. We kind of have two definitions of a saint. We, we think a saint is someone who's been exceptionally good or holy, right? So we know most of us don't qualify for that. But remember two weeks ago when we were looking at the, at the book of Ephesians and Paul addressed them as God's holy people. But what did we learn later on about the church in Ephesus? They weren't acting like holy people, were they? Paul said, quit your stealing. <laughs> quit cheating. Quit acting stupid. Do you remember that? But still he calls them holy. You see, in the Protestant tradition, a, a saint is anybody who's a Christian. You don't have to be extraordinarily holy or good. Now, in the Catholic tradition, to be a saint, you have to have shown an unusually high degree of holiness. You need to have performed at least two miracles, and you need to be dead. Okay, you can't be a, a living saint. And then the Pope has to sign off on you as well. And so it's the latter definition that my friend and I usually argue about, and usually it goes like this. He'll say, you know, Mark, you believe the, the saints are alive in heaven, right? I say, yes. He says, do you believe in the communion of saints, that, that Christians both in heaven and on earth still belong to the church? I'll say, absolutely. He says, does God expect us to pray for each other? Yes, I do. And then he'll say, okay, then why can't we pray to the saints who are now united with God and are much closer to him than we are? And then I'll answer, well, the Bible doesn't tell us to do that. We don't even know if the saints in heaven can even hear us. And, and sometimes I wish they wouldn't, don't you? Don't you something, you know, yeah act a certain way. Boy, I hope nobody in heaven heard that because that wasn't too slick. And then he'll quote from Revelation about the prayers of the saints, and then I quote from 1 Timothy, and by that time then our discussion's over with. He thinks he won. I think I won. Are you doing something wrong if you pray to the saints? Absolutely not. But why not go directly to Jesus that we know hears us and is interceding for us? You see, we're intercessors as well. 
Paul makes that clear in, in, in the first part of our text. He says, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live, listen, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. So not only is Jesus an intercessor, but he calls you and me, the church, to be intercessors as well. Verse 3 says that when we do that, it pleases God. It makes God happy. And God works through our prayers to bring peace to this world. And so our intercessory ministry is simply an extension of Jesus' intercessory work. We are given the privilege of representing the world at the throne of God's grace. And we get to represent God to our neighbors and to our friends and to our family. I have a designated time each morning for prayer. And I, I keep a prayer journal. And, and, and I write down in there the nations that I feel God wants me to pray for. I, I pray for these nations' leaders. I, I pray for peace. I pray for our country, especially during uh, this upcoming election. I pray for the cities that are having difficulties. I, I have names of people who are struggling with addictions and, and illnesses and broken relationships, pr people and friends who, 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 who are lost and far from God. Because Paul makes it clear here that you and I are given this ministry. We are given the role of being intercessors. And so Paul says, you want to live in a, in a peaceful and quiet world? You better get on your knees. And act as an intercessor. But not only is Jesus our intercessor and our mediator, he's also our advocate. In the book of Zechariah, uh, there's a really he has these interesting visions. If you've never read through the book, you should. It's a short book, but it's very interesting. And in one of these visions, uh, he has this vision of the high priest, whose name was Joshua at that time. And Zechariah's vision seems to take place in this divine courtroom and it seems that Joshua is on trial that he has been arraigned like a criminal standing before an angel of the Lord and, and in the presence of supernatural witnesses the, the high priest is accused by Satan who, who stands at his right side and acts as the prosecuting attorney and, the, and in this vision Joshua the high priest is, is clothed with these filthy garments representing his sinfulness and the sinfulness of his nation. And in this vision, in an act of grace, the angel commands that the filthy clothes be removed and that Joshua be clothed with clean clothes, symbolizing the cleansing of his sin, his iniquity, and promising that now Joshua will have direct access into the courts of the Lord. Powerful vision. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel unworthy to enter into the courts of God's throne. Sometimes I think to myself, I, I'm such a disappointment to God that I'm sure He wouldn't listen to my prayers. And even if He did listen, I don't think He would do anything. But listen to what Paul writes in, in Romans 8. He says, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. What does that mean? 
It means that you and I don't need to feel unworthy anymore. We may feel like we've disappointed God, but God doesn't feel that way about us. That in Christ, our, our filthy clothes have been removed and you and I have been given a new, brand new white robe of righteousness. Last Sunday was Yom Kippur, the beginning of uh, the Jewish uh, Day of Atonement. That ritual was conducted every year until the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. And, and in this, a high priest would, would bring in a goat and slaughter it and take some of the blood into the, the Holy of Holies and, and pour it upon the mercy seat. And the shedding of blood would remind the people that the penalty for sin is death. The writer of Hebrews would look back upon this and, and would say, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And then they would bring in a second goat that they called the scapegoat. And the high priest would, would lay his hands upon the goat and confess the sins of the people, and, and then it would be led away into the wilderness and released. But these two goats symbolized the, the seriousness of sin and the need for reconciliation to God. And, and the New Testament writers looked upon this and, and they saw Jesus as the fulfillment of it all. And they began to understand that, that Jesus Christ substituted himself in our place. That he suffered. That he died to pay the penalty for our sins because the Bible teaches the wages of sin is death. And so when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, it meant that his mission was completed. It meant that our debt of sin had been paid. It meant the power of sin to control our lives had been broken. It meant that evil had been defeated. It meant that our guilt and our shame is over with. And it means the beginning of a new life for you, for me. So when we're reminded of our failures and of our shame, we can remind ourselves, it's finished. When somebody wants to remind you of, of your past and, and wants to hold your fail, failures against you, maybe you should just say, excuse me, but it's over. When we feel loaded down and ashamed, maybe our word to ourselves that we need to say is, it's gone. You see, the central redeeming message is that when you meet Jesus, you're born again. You're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. You have a, a new identity. You were a sinner, and while you still stumble and, and, and while we still blow it, you are now fundamentally, listen, you are now fundamentally defined as a saint. And you may not feel very saintly, but you are. Because well, it doesn't mean that we don't sin but that we trust in Jesus' work of atonement, that he is our mediator, not just once, but every single moment of every single day. God knows everything about you. He knows your struggle. He knows it, and I'm here to tell you that it's finished, that Jesus, the ultimate scapegoat, took it. And it was nailed to a cross so that we could live free. He did it so you would never need to feel alone again. That Jesus has your back. You see, Jesus did the work 
so that we can approach the throne of grace with absolute confidence. His work on the atonement on the cross is finished. But his work as mediator goes on and on and on until the end of the age and everything is brought under his feet. King of kings, Lord of lords, our mediator and our redeemer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, because of the work of Jesus, we will never be alone again. You have our back. You are our mediator. You are our intercessor. You are our advocate. You are our attorney in heaven, representing us to the throne of grace. Thank you, God. And may that knowledge give us the confidence to approach you, that you know everything about us, and you still love us. Thank you, we pray. Amen.